What a wonderful day today. We celebrate freedom, the freedom that God gives. And here the Word of God I read from 1 Peter, the first chapter, beginning with verse 2. Dear friends, God the Father chose you long ago and knew you would become His children. And the Holy Spirit has been at work in your hearts, cleansing you with the blood of Jesus Christ and making you to please Him. May God bless you richly and grant you increasing freedom from all anxiety and fear. May God bless you richly today and grant each of us increasing freedom from all anxiety and fear. May we join our hands together and our hearts together as we pray together. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, dear God, we join hands with one another because we are in this together with you and for you as your people. We thank you, Father, that you have brought us together and made us family. We thank you for the great diversity within the family, the uniqueness of talents and abilities, the variety of gifts. And we celebrate each and all. We thank you for the differences that are all united in Jesus Christ, the basic unity of all life. And so, Father, we come to thank you today in a special way for freedom. We thank you, Father, for the freedom that you give us, the freedom of forgiveness, the freedom of the deliverance from our sins and the penalty of them. We thank you, Father, as we pray in this room for people around this world and other languages and other lands and other congregations by other names that are all worshiping you, the great God of freedom. And so, Father, we pray that people today everywhere might know more and more political freedom. But, Father, help us to realize that even more basic and more essential than that is the freedom to know you as Lord and Savior so that all of the other freedoms of life that we enjoy can emanate from the holy source of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this day. We thank you for our forefathers who came to this land because they wanted freedom. They wanted freedom from the domination of church and state. They wanted to be free to worship. They wanted to be free to select their leaders. They wanted to have freedom in the finest and highest sense of the word. And we thank you, O oh great God of freedom, for giving birth to this place. And may we never take its blessings for granted. We thank you for this time of worship and praise. We dedicate it to you now in the loving name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Freedom, freedom. What a wonderful word. But you know not everybody's free that thinks they are. You can live in America, watch fireworks, fly the flag, sing the Star Spangled Banner and be a slave. Be a slave. There's a greater freedom than political freedom. There's a deeper need than political freedom. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's what I'd like us to think about this morning. The freedom that sets us free. The freedom that liberates us. Jesus said in the 8th chapter of John, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We see that uh, 
placarded about and sometimes in schools or courthouses or one place or another, and it's appropriate. It's fine. The only problem is they miss the verse that precedes it, which gives content to it, and without which there is no real freedom. The verse before it, Jesus is, is speaking, and he says, You are truly my disciples if you live as I tell you to, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth that liberates is the truth that is born out of a personal, individual relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the truth that sets us free. That is the truth that liberates. And he emphasizes that a few sentences later when he declares again, if the Son, so in capital Son himself he's referring to, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What is the truth that sets us free? Listen carefully. I think it's very important. The truth that liberates us, the truth that sets us free, is not the teachings of Jesus, as true as they are, as inspired as they are. The teachings of Jesus do not set us free. The doctrines are the accumulation of certain scripture and ideas and surround what we call a doctrine. Doctrines do not set us free. In fact, the tendency is that those who think they have the ultimate truth in terms of propositions, doctrine, or scripture interpretation have subjected people to servitude for centuries and centuries and centuries in the name of orthodoxy. Freedom has been denied by taking certain statements, by taking certain doctrines, and the interpreter of those statements and the interpreter or creator of those doctrines says that this is the truth. And if you do not believe this, and if you do not practice this, then you are not a Christian. And across the centuries, those who have felt that way have employed the power of the state to enforce what they believe to be the truth. And the reason our forefathers came to America was not to escape just the dictatorship or the tyranny of the political state, but to escape the dictatorship and the tyranny of a church-state coalition. For all of the governments of Europe that were the perpetrators of persecution upon your spiritual forefathers and mine were part of a state church and church state. That's a bit basic reason our forefathers came. They wanted to be free 
to worship God according to the dictates of their own heart. John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English in the 1300s. was vilified because of it. Brilliant scholar at Oxford. But it set free the Word of God in people's minds and he believed in the competency of the soul that everybody hearing the Word of God could interpret it for themselves. And so people began to do that. And a fellow by the name of John Huss over there in, in Prague, Czechoslovakia, began to read Wycliffe. And he began to say, we're saved by faith and faith alone. We're not saved by the sacraments. We're not saved by the church. The Word of God should be open to everybody. Communion should be available to all. And so he, because of the church-state combination that existed in his day, was burned at the stake at Constance. A neighbor to him, not many miles away, was a monk by the name of Martin Luther who began to read the writings of Wycliffe and the writings of John Huss and one day went down to the bulletin board of the church and tacked 95 theses or statements on the church door at Wittenberg and we had what some call the beginning of the Reformation. It began long before that. And then it, ex it exploded. And people began to believe that they could know the Lord for themselves. And there were groups of people like the Hussites and uh, the Mennonites and the Moravians and the Quakers and the Baptists. And the Baptists who said, yeah, we interpret the Bible in a certain way and we want to get together and worship. And the state said, no, you can't. And they were persecuted and killed by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds let me give you a little specific history without belaboring the issue. In uh, 1662, by an act of parliament, parliament under the, uh, of course, had a church state, the Church of England, they passed the Uniformity Act of 1662, which said that all worship services must be identical. Uniformity. Must all use the Book of Common Prayer. That's it. Not Wycliffe and that translation. This is the way worship is to be concluded or conducted. That wasn't working too well, so they passed another law in 1664, the Convertical Act of 1664, which says the church that is not part of the uniform church of England is not only wrong in our estimation, everybody has the right to make that determination, they're not only in error, and everybody has the right to make that decision for themselves. They said, by the act of the state, they are unlawful. You can't exist, you Baptists. That wasn't working too well, so they passed another act one year later in 1665 called the Five Mile Act, which said that no pastor or preacher who had ever pastored or preached in any city in England could come within five miles of that city. So some Baptists and some Quakers and some other folks said, we believe it's time to move. To back up, back up with me to 1542 to 46 in Geneva, when John Calvin, a reformer, brilliant man, great theologian, I believe in my heart a Christian, wrote, wrote some of the most powerful insights into the scripture anyone will ever read. But he set up a, a church state in, in Geneva, 
It was called the Protestant Rome, Geneva was. He had a, what's called a consistory, 12 people that he appointed that were the governing body. And they not only conducted all the religious activities, they controlled all of life. And I mean all of life. And I'll give you a brief example of it. Between 1542 and 46, in four years, 58 people were executed, most of them for heresy. Many were banished. Why? Well, heresy was the basic reason. A, a, a doctor, a physician by the name of Michael Servetus, he had the idea that the reason a person was lost was not because God predetermined that he would be condemned to hell from before his birth, but that a person was lost because they refused to accept the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. And Servetus began to read the scripture and began to think that for himself. And so he, he wrote it up and gave it to his pastor. And his pastor, who was, of course, appointed by John Calvin, gave it to John Calvin, so they brought Servetus in. They arrested him and they burned him at the stake for disagreeing with John Calvin. Church attendance was compulsory. If you refused to take communion, it was a crime. It was a very class-ridden society because Calvin believed sincerely in his day, but he believed that uh, all the stations of life were ordained. If you were low-born, you were supposed to be low-born. If you were a peasant, you were to stay a peasant. If you were aristocratic, you were to stay aristocratic. So he, he prescribed what people could wear as a reflection of their status in the community. That was controlled. What you wore day in and day out. He also prescribed the number of dishes that were to be served at each meal. Your house could be searched at any time. Here are the things that were prohibited, some of the things. Feasting, dancing, singing, pictures, church bells, organs, irreligious songs, Theatrical plays, rouge, jewelry, lace, hunting, naming children after anyone but Old Testament characters. One man had the audacity to name his son Claude, and he spent months and months and months in jail. Abortion was not a political issue in, in John Calvin's day because if a woman was found pregnant and not married, she was drowned, killing both the mother and the baby. And if they knew who the man was, he was drowned also. Calvin's own son-in-law was found with another woman and Calvin's daughter-in-law was found with another man behind a haystack. All four of them were executed. You see, this can occur when church and state get together, and it can occur when people move from the truth, which is not propositions and doctrines, but a person.
Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the truth. And if we begin to limit truth to people's interpretation of the scripture or their doctrinal evaluations of scripture and they make that orthodox for everyone and then somehow get the power to enforce that, they have missed the basic freedom, the essential freedom, and in so doing have contradicted the word and the practice of God. Jesus said, I am the truth and we will never know the fullness of truth until we know him personally and individually in our hearts and in our minds. And we may disagree on certain passages of scripture. We may have different interpretations of the Lord's Supper or of baptism, but what makes us Christians and what saves us forever is our personal relationship, not to a set of propositions, but to a living person, Jesus Christ. You know the old preachers in the 17 or really the 1800s in America who came, for, came west with the, with the gospel, Methodist circuit writers and Baptist revivalists and missionaries that came out, uh, they, they were preaching to people that many of them were unschooled, unlettered, and those, you read those folks like Sam Jones and Peter Cartwright, uh, preachers in an in a, in a earlier era, they, they preached sermons where the, where the outline itself or the statements itself you couldn't forget. I mean, they were, they were sermons. Uh, for example, the sermon on Samson. It, every preacher, every preacher at all has heard about this simple outline. You know the story of Samson. Samson, this powerful man whose strength was in his hair, betrayed his secret to Delilah. They cut his hair. He lost his strength. And then do you know what happened to him? First thing they did is they blinded him. The next thing they did was that they bound him. And then the third thing they did was they made him tread there and tread the grain like an animal. Some of the old... 18th century preachers would preach that sermon outline, sin blinds, and sin binds, and sin grinds. Now, if you didn't hear another thing that that preacher said in that long sermon, you'd never forget that outline, would you? Sin blinds, and it binds, and it grinds. Man, that'll preach. My friend Brownie Ware tried to preach it up in Hillsborough, Texas. We were students at Baylor, and this was a youth revival. <laughs> and Browning was, I, I started to say trying to preach. That's all we ever did. That's all we still do is try to do it. Browning was preaching on Samson in First Baptist Church of Hillsborough. He'd preach one night, now the next. One of those kind of nights we would alternate. We used to do that a lot. And the Browning was preaching away on Samson, and he was trying to think of, of, of an analogy that the young people in that day would understand what Samson was like. Now, if he were doing it today, he would probably talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger, however you pronounce his, his name. Well, that's it. But in, in that day, back in the 40s, if you were looking for someone, who would you pick? Tarzan, that's right. And Browning had that picture in his mind and inadvertently and unknowingly began to call Samson Tarzan. <laughs> and, Tar and Tarzan was out there grinding it. <laughs> now, 
If you ever go to Hillsboro, Texas, and you run into someone who says, you know what? Tarzan's in the Bible. <laughs> Don't doubt them. Just write it off to Browning. That's how, that's how it got there, and that's all, that's all that they remember. But here's, here's the, here another great outline. I want to touch on it for just a moment. Jesus Christ, and this scripture is telling us this very clearly and plainly. Jesus Christ has come to save us. You can remember this, and it's good to remember it. He has come to save us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Here it is. He's come to save us from the power of sin. The, the, excuse me, the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin? It's death. The wages of sin is death. Whatever sin it might be. And Jesus Christ has forgiven us all of our sins. That's why he died on the cross. He came to take the penalty of our sins. That is a completed action in the past. That is a transaction that is done. It cannot be redone. It doesn't need to be redone. It is finished, he, 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 he cried. It is done. The great transaction's done. Your sins are gone. You say, well, Buckner, I'm not a godly person. Well, listen to a good word from the Scripture. Christ died for the ungodly. So that's all of us. In varying forms, various ways, various expressions, that's all of us. And when he died on that cross, he forgave us all of our sin, and he remembers it against us no more. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. That's done, completed, action, in the past, on the cross. He forgave us of all of our sin. Our sins, known and unknown. Our sins, past, present, and future, forgiven. The penalty of those sins is forgiven. He is progressively saving us from the power of sin. Because those tendencies are still with us. Those habits that we have fed for uh, across decades possibly, they are still there. And, and, and it's not easy in a, in a second to, to, to stop that. That's what the word sanctification means, right? Big old theological word. It just means God isn't through with us. Our, the penalty of our sin has been forgiven, and then he is progressively in the process of saving us from the lingering, devastating, debilitating power of that sin to ruin our lives in the present. Now, I know it's hard to undo some old habits. You just can't do it with a snap of a finger or by just walking down an aisle making a decision, which I did August 31st, 1946. I remember it clearly. Walked down an aisle, made a decision. And I'd gotten my heart right with the Lord, and out of that fell God calling me into the ministry. But I'd been, in, as you know, in the service for three and a half years. I'd been overseas for a couple of years. And I'd been in a man's world all of that time. And I, I picked up some language, some words and some phrases. And when I came home for the first few weeks, my folks thought I'd lost the power of speech. Because I'd start to say something and I'd have to stop and sort of filter it through. I'd have to put a Marine Corps filter up there, you know, kind of filter that language through there before I'd, I'd say some things that could be very normal to me and some of them very descriptive uh, and very picturesque. And here I am thinking of some of them now, not to do that, you see. 
So there is a progressiveness about the grace of God working in our hearts, in our lives. He is in the constant process of saving us from the power of those sins. Read about a woman who got on a city bus carrying a big heavy suitcase and the bus was crowded and this, no one got up to give her a seat. As used to be customary in buses and streetcars, but this lady was standing there holding on to that strap and holding this heavy suitcase and it was laborious and, and clumsy and uh, went for a few blocks. And after a few blocks, the, the bus driver, he stopped to let someone off, turned around and looked at the, looked at the woman and he said, Lady, this bus can carry your suitcase too. Put it down. And I do not know what kind of baggage you brought in here with you this morning. It may be some guilt in your heart, maybe some unresolved problem, maybe some bitterness, some anger, some jealousy. I don't know what, what sort of baggage you're carrying. Put it down. Just drop it. Jesus can handle that too. He says, as I read earlier, may God bless you richly and grant you increasing freedom from all anxiety and fear. Put it down. He'll take it. He'll give you strength to overcome it having already forgiven you of the penalty of sin, He will progressively save you from its devastating power to linger in our lives to our own detriment. And then someday, someday, He's going to come back and He's going to deliver all of us from the very presence of sin. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth and all of the old stuff will have passed away and He will have made all things new. I had a man come to see me this past week. It was one of the most remarkable conversations I can ever remember having. He's not a member of this church. If I were to call his name, I, very few, if any of you, would know him. It, it, it's not because he's notorious or something. He's just a private kind of man. Older man. He came to see me, and uh, he said, I've been working... To, to, to get my life right with the Lord, to be sure that I'm right with the Lord. I know that I have more years behind me than I have ahead of me. He's not in real good health. He's been doing an inventory on his life, and he said, he said, I, and, and I've had some friends that have given me a lot of books to read, and he said, I started reading some of them, and they heard about the, the second coming, this, and death, and uh, the ascension, and all. He said, I don't understand all that. And I, I, I just quit reading those books. Just give me a simple answer about it if you can, if you can help me. And I said, well, you've become probably the most simple man you could find, and if I can help you, I want to do it. He said, I, said, I can't tell you how hard the last number of years I've been trying to get things right in my life, trying to, to change some things in my life, and trying to do something about the past. Most of it I can't do anything about, but I just somehow feel like I ought to try. And he kept using that word try over and over and over again. And he said, I'm just trying as hard as I know how. I said, well, I commend your efforts and I commend your desire, but let me make a suggestion that you're using the wrong T word 
And the word is not try, but trust. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own tryingism. Lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. Trust the Lord with anything, with everything. And then He said this. He said, some time ago, not long ago, one night I started going through my life as far back as I could remember with a fine-tooth comb. Thinking of all the sins I'd committed. Just every one of them. And, and thinking of the people that I had hurt, intentionally or unintentionally, or the people that Maybe I had wrong. Went back, just this long list. And he said it would just kind of overwhelm me. And he said, I went to sleep and I had a dream. He said, I am a lapidarian. I like to collect rocks. I have all of my life. He said, I love rocks. In my dream, while I was sleeping, all around me, all of these rocks started coming up out of the earth. Dozens and dozens and dozens of these rocks. And on each one of those rocks was one of those sins I had remembered. Or one of those names I had remembered. And he said the field was just covered with them. Then he said, my son came in a truck and he picked up all those rocks and put them in this dump truck and drove off with them. Gone. said, what do you think that means? Well, I believe that at times God gives people dreams. He did in the Bible. I believe he does in life. And I don't think you have to be a Joseph in Egypt to interpret the dream that God gave him. And I believe God gave him that dream as surely as I'm standing here. I said, but I think I would make one addition or maybe correction. I believe if you look closely, you would have seen that it was not your son, but his son that took all that stuff away. It's gone. It's buried in the depths of the sea, God said. He separated us from it as far as the east is from the west, God said. They're gone. Friend, that's freedom. That's freedom from anxiety and fear. That's freedom from guilt. That's freedom from the fear of the past. 
past or the future. That's freedom. And a marvelous thing happened during the week. After that, I was sharing that story with Martha, and she told me about what had happened to her during the week. And she was walking on the treadmill. It's too hot to go outside to do it. She was walking on the treadmill, and she said, every day I just kept singing over and over and over a certain song. She said, I don't know why. It's on my mind. But you've had that happen to you. I have too. You just get a certain melody or song on your mind. It just goes over and over and over. Martha said, I just kept singing that and singing that. And it was a song written, a hymn written, by Charles Wesley, brother of John Wesley, the great evangelistic team in Great Britain. And it was written in the 1700s. It's as contemporary as today. And I said, Martha, I want you to sing a couple of verses. And what I want you to do, you've heard this, you have sung this. You may have missed its message. That can happen. I want you to listen particularly to verse 2. And as she comes to sing, remember the rocks. Remember, the penalty is gone. The power is leaving. And someday we will be removed from presence of sin, but until then, God is with us to give us increasing freedom from all anxiety.